Thanks a whole lot for uh, for coming out and uh, helping me um, celebrate this book that uh, that really means a lot to me in a lot of ways. And what I what I hope to do this evening is to just tell you a little bit about um, how this book came to be and read some selections from it. And uh, hopefully the pieces will all seem to fit together um, by the time uh, you know the hour is up. I, I've never done um, much of pausing at uh, the ends of these events to see whether or not there are questions anybody wants to ask. And you understand why I don't do that. It's just terrifying to uh, run these events and, and have a question and answer session and then have nobody ask any questions. Um, so, and I, and I haven't, I should have planted somebody in the audience to ask a question, but I just didn't think of it. Um, in time, but I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to look at my watch at a certain point and sort of gauge how it feels and see whether this is a, something you want to have any conversation about uh, instead of just leaving it in the realm of performance, as it were. Um, I need to start by making a small tribute to somebody else. And it's to put it into context, as I came in this evening, I was handed two new books, um, one by Yusef how do you pronounce it, Zygum? Zygum. Um, who began life as an Urdu poet in Pakistan um, and writes in English in Colorado Springs now. Wonderful book, like a Vermeer, like Vermeer, like a Vermeer and other poems. And my dear friend Aaron Anstett's new book, Each Place the Bodies, uh, is just out. And, you know, you come into a room and you get these things and you realize that, you know, we're, we're, the poets are just part of one big dysfunctional family. And um, um, so I'd sort of like to remind you guys that there are some other books I hope you'll be looking for and paying attention to. Aaron N. Set, Each Place the Bodies. This book just completely rocks. It's really something. And then, if you can imagine a Whitman-esque voice coming out of Pakistan, it's Yusuf's, um, and uh, I really recommend uh, getting a hold of Yusuf right here in the front row and tracking down his book, Like a Vermeer and Other Poems. I bring it up because I got an email this afternoon um, just saying that an old friend died, and um, For, for poets of my generation, it's starting to feel as if it's very hard to uh, keep going when uh, the older great poets of the generation who were born in the 20s are dying off the way they are. And this is, you know, not one of the poets. This is the wife of one of my absolute heroes among contemporary poets. Richard Wilbur was married to Charlie for 64 years. And Shirley died Monday. So I thought I would begin this reading by paying a little homage to Shirley and reading Dick's great, great poem uh, about long marriage for her. It's called 4C. Her name was Charlotte. And Shirley was a life force. She, when Dick came here to read about five, six years ago, we took, took them up to a picnic in the mountains. 
And I showed them how you could feed the gray jays, you know, the whiskey jacks you can get the birds to eat out of your hands. And Charlie, sitting at this picnic table up in the mountains, starts putting grapes on her head and going like this. She puts grapes in her mouth and goes, and, you know, she's an 80-year-old woman when she's doing this. And Charlie was, um, she was a life force. She was a, when I went through kind of a bad, um, depressive mood last summer, and Charlie wrote me two incredibly sweet letters about her experience with these things and um, how you get through them. And, uh, you know, the world's a poorer place without her, but here's Dick's take on their long marriage. 4C. After the clash of elevator gates and the long sinking, she emerges where a slight thing in the morning's crosstown glare. She looks up toward the window where he waits. Then, in a fleeting taxi, joins the rest of the huge traffic bound forever west. On such grand scale, do lovers say goodbye. Even this other pair, whose high romance had only the duration of a dance, and who, now taking leave with stricken eye, see each in each a whole new life forgone. For them, above the darkling clubhouse lawn, bright Perseids flash and crumble, while for these who part now in the dock, weighed down by grief and baggage, yet with something like relief, it takes 3,000 miles of knitting seas to cancel out their crossing and unmake the amorous rough and tumble of their wake. We are denied, my love, their fine tristesse and bittersweet regrets, and cannot share the frequent vistas of their large despair, where love and all are swept to nothingness. Still, there's a certain scope in that long love which constant spirits are the keepers of, and which though taken to be tame and stayed as a wild sostenuto of the heart, a passion joined to courtesy and art, which has the quality of something made, like a good fiddle, like the rose's scent, like a rose window in the firmament. If I had a bottle of bourbon to pass around, I'd suggest we toast Charlie Wilbur. She would uh, approve of that. Um, I hope you'll uh, remember Charlie, and I hope you'll buy Richard Wilbur's collected poems and rejoice in one of the great voices of our language. What I want to do tonight is celebrate a book that's a very strange kind of book. It's a, it's a novel, and it's a novel in verse. You've got to understand that this is a nutty thing to do in our day and age. This isn't done. Um, it is done, but most of the time when it's done, it, it really has no effect on the world. People don't understand how to read these things. I want to try to make a case for this as a way of writing. And I also want to suggest that this is bound up in our lives here in this room. I'm reminded of the fact 
that for most of my life, and I've been associated, I've lived in Colorado off and on for much of my 52 years um, at different points, uh, I've never known the name of that mountain. Um, we think it's called Pike's Peak. Well, to some people, 200 years ago, it was called Tava. Uh, and I don't know what that means. It probably means big rock or something like that. Um, but this brings me around to a notion about um, one of the ways in which poetry means what it means in the world. Poetry is one of the ways in which people have tried to connect the tribe to the land it's living in. And I would argue that most of us in Colorado Springs don't know where we're living. We don't know the names of the places around us. We don't know who was here before us. We don't know the stories of the people who've come through here and been here. And that one of the goals of my new book is to try to connect us again for a little piece of the place where we're living. I think it's a bigger story than this. It's also a story about American immigration, which is a huge part of our national story. I think it's a story about family. It's a story about language. It's a story about movement, people who are deracinated and disconnected and attempting to find themselves in this unknowable landscape full of arbitrary signs. And, um, and it's a story about a specific political event. On August or April 20th, um, 1914, um, after months of uh, militaristic struggle between immigrants, 70% of whom did not speak English or much English, and between the official uh, strata of American society, uh, there was a pitched battle um, just south of here, south of Walsenburg, that lasted all day long. Uh, it took place among the tents of striking miners, about 1,200 strong, and around the rail beds and railway bridges and canyons of a place we call Ludlow. And uh, the battle took place between the militia, the National Guard, um, some armed detectives, and um, miners, some of whom were armed and some of whom were not armed. Archaeological evidence suggests that the miners were outgunned. They usually had shotguns, and the uh, militia usually had long-range rifles, and they had one or two machine guns planted on a hill nearby. At the end of the day, uh, at least one militiaman was dead and mutilated. Uh, Eighteen miners and their families, women and children mostly, were dead, uh, and a number of other people were wounded. Um, and that was, that was only one battle out of many over a period of about nine months. But it's the battle that took on the most symbolic uh, import. Woody Guthrie sang a fairly sentimental song about the Ludlow Massacre. And it has entered American lore as one of the big events in American labor relations. Now, to write about this poses immediately uh, a very dangerous trap. Uh, and that is to believe that politics are black and white and that there are good guys and bad guys and that, and that, um, uh, that the miners were somehow virtuous and the, the militia were all evil, that sort of thing. Uh, and there's so much lore in American labor history which poses that kind of dualism that it's very, very easy for a writer to fall into that trap. 
it didn't interest me. I'm not interested in virtue. Uh, I'm not interested in political um, righteousness. That is not what Ludlow is about. Ludlow is about trying to feel the weight of people as they are. Trying to understand the specific gravity of human lives. And it arises out of an anxiety that I feel personally and that my characters feel about existence itself. How do we know who the hell we are? Where we come from? Why we're alive? What makes our life? What defines our life? How does language, how does the languages, how do the languages we speak make us the people we are? Now, I became interested in this story when I was a little boy, actually, and I worked this into the, the tale. When I was a kid in the late 50s, we came down from Washington State where I lived and visited an uncle in Boulder, and he drove us in his car down the old road down to Trinidad where my dad was born and raised. My great-grandfather settled here in the 1890s. He was postmaster of Walsenburg. He ran one of the stores for the Rockefeller companies. He was one of the bad guys in this story. He cheated the miners, um, making them pay for goods with script instead of cash money, etc. Then he became a businessman in Trinidad, briefly the mayor of Trinidad. He started a dairy company and um, manufactured ice cream, Mason's ice cream. The, the ads for Mason's ice cream said, Mason's ice cream, better than the law requires. Because Mason's ice cream was made with 20% butter fat instead of 10% butter fat, like the other guy's ice cream. That's why I'm on Lipitor now. Um, well, George Mason was a man I never met, but... Uh, uh, I've seen photographs of him. I've seen, I've seen photos of him in the mines at Walsenburg um, as, a, as a shopkeeper visiting the miners, etc. I've seen photographs of his store, etc. And I think I used a little, bit of, a little bit of that family history as a way of grounding myself in this story. George's son, Abraham, my dear beloved grandfather, uh, ran off to work in Idaho. Um, and uh, when the war broke out, he was flat-footed. The American army wouldn't take him, World War I, I mean. And he ran across the border into Canada and joined the Seaforth Highlanders and uh, wore a kilt and carried ammunition and charges against the Germans and was shot through the hand in the Battle of Amiens in 1918. And, uh, and I found his name and, and his story in books in Scotland. Um, and George, uh, Abraham came back to Trinidad with his bride from Washington Territory, where the other part of my family grows up. And, uh, and George became a candy maker. And so when I was a kid and was driven down to Trinidad, it was to visit Granddad and go to the candy, candy factory and dip our hands in barrels of this sweet stuff. And, and uh, Southern Colorado meant good things to me. Um, it was a landscape of just rife with story, lore, mythology. My uncles were great storytellers. My grandfather was a great storyteller, smoking his Chesterfields, taking me out arrowhead hunting. This land became, for me, a place I didn't know the stories about, but a place that I wanted to know the stories about. It became extremely important to me. And some of this is the land that the U.S. Army is trying to take from ranchers who were friends of my grandfather's and friends of my, my father's, some of them still alive, 
and saying things like, I just voted Democrat for the first time in my life. I'm so angry at those bastards. Um, but, you know, it's a complicated matter. And, uh, and it's part of the land we're living in. And these guys have been there for a long time. They're wonderful, wonderful people. Well, as we drove down there, uh, my father pointed to some masons east of the road, west of the road, and said, Ludlow. And my uncle started telling us about what happened there. And I didn't put the pieces together. I didn't understand them. I was a very young kid. But by God, I never forgot the name Ludlow. And it's been in my head ever since. When uh, one of my uncles, the uncle who used to live in Boulder, moved to uh, Ireland, he gave me a book about Ludlow. I read it. I became fascinated. And then I read a great book by a Greek-American writer called Zeus Papanikolas. And the book is called Buried Unsung. And it's Louis Ticas and the Ludlow Massacre. Well, when I read this book, I understood that this story was something I had to work with. Um, it's my little piece of land down there. You start to think you own it in your imagination. And I've lived in Greece. And I speak Greek. And I love Greece. And the story about a Greek who came here, had a business in Denver selling coffee for a while, and then got himself mixed up in union politics in a pretty crazy way, and ended up going back and forth for a year between Denver and Trinidad, usually uh, stealing rides on the trains because union men were kicked off the trains, weren't allowed to ride the trains. Um, Louis Ticas became a union organizer. And Louis Ticas is one of the martyrs you see on the monument at Ludlow. The monument's incorrect. It says he died at 30. He was 28 when he died. He was shot in the back, probably by members of the Colorado militia in a, in a big argument that took place. Now, I got really interested in this story at this point. Immigration, movement, language, everything I've been obsessed with in my life is part of this story. And I decided I wanted to write a novel about it, and I started writing in verse. And here's the, the little gist of what I want to say before, uh, before I read from the book. All novels are really problems. The novelist has a set of problems he or she wants to overcome. And the novelist is trying to figure out ways of doing that. We now have this week a wonderful series of lectures going on in campus, and next week as well, uh, run uh, financed by the McLean Foundation and um, organized by John Simons in the English department, in which scholars, film scholars and literary scholars and writers are talking about narrative, narrative strategies, and what goes through storytellers' minds when they're making stories. And um, it strikes me that, that I'm very much bound up in the, the problem. A novel is a problem. A novel in verse is a problem squared um, in, in many ways. My problem was not only how to treat a political subject without piety, how to, fall into the, how to avoid falling into the trap of political piety, because I wanted really to give some sense of the rough-and-tumble reality of the place and not succumb to uh, treating these people as if they were saints and, and villains. Um, and, um, and my problem is also um, how to use verse technique 
to charge the story, give it propulsion, and make it feel uh, like a page turner, like something you really want to be engaged in, rather than something difficult or arcane. Um, well, in order to solve the first problem, I, I invented a narrative voice, or I devised a narrative voice instinctively that can move about the landscape any way it wants. I can move about in time, I can move about in space, um, and maybe the narrative voice is me, I don't know. I actually show up and walk through the story on occasion and talk about that. Um, but it's my effort to say, this is the story of a middle-aged professor who's piecing together the story. Um, and thereby, I hope, avoid the charge of, of sentimentalizing labor relations in America. Um, and in terms of answering the question about why do it in verse, I think I've just got to read you some sections and, and uh, see if I can say something about them afterward. I'm going to read you part of the opening chapter. I'm not going to explain anything about it, um, except that uh, you're going to be introduced to a young character at the age of 12, who in the course of the story ages to the age of 16, and then we actually meet her in the 1970s when she's an old woman toward the end of the book. Her name is Louisa Mole. She's part Mexican, part Welsh. Uh, her father works as a, as a demolition expert in the mines. She becomes known as La Huérfana, the orphan, but that's part of the story. La Huérfana. Shot firers filed in after the diggers left and found the marked drills for their measured shot. As daylight died, the men were blasting deep for the next day's cuts of coal. Down below the mesa, Smells of cooking rose from shacks and rose. And there Louisa scrubbed the pot as if she were some miner's wife and not a sapper's daughter, scrawny, barely twelve. Some nights she waited till the lamps went out in cabins all along the line where men who tried to wash the coal dust from their skin snored and tossed, endured by wives and children, catching sleep for an early start from dark to dark below, from desert stars to flickering kerosene, foul air that made the young men think of death. Louisa waited in the twilight babble of miners bedding down, some Mexican like her late mother, some filling the night with songs in Welsh, Italian. Some were Greek and talked of fighting wars against the Turks and made bazooki strings and liras sing, their workers' fingers nimble when they played in high dry air of a Colorado camp. But some nights she could barely hear the life around her, hauling water from the creek and pouring off the clearer part for drinking. Her heart held steady till explosions came from gaping mines uphill. Dull thudding sounds like the push of air a man's torso made when other men lit into him with fists. The mesa sounded like a beaten man, pinned down and beaten senseless in the night, the way it sometimes happened to a scab or union organizer or a man brought in from far away to agitate. No one who grew up as Louisa had in coal camps from Trinidad to Pueblo, watching the typhoid rake through families, could say she'd never seen a beaten man. The mines made widows, too, when timbermen or diggers deep inside the earth cut through the gas and lantern set it off, or when the pillared chambers fell. You heard a slump within, and some poor digger ran out, choking there was thirty boys still trapped in the seam, and some days all you'd see was bodies carted down the hill and bosses counting heads. Luis's father was John Mole, the firer, and on his team were Lefty Calabrini, who'd lost three fingers of his gnarled right hand, Cash Jackson, who never saved a penny, Too Tall McIntosh, who acquired a stoop from running wire to the ignition box, 
I've always been a mole, her father joked, about his boyhood underground in Wales. He never talked about New Mexico, Louise's mother, or the typhoid curse that took so many from his veil of tears. He saved to buy a headstone, read his Bible, always wore a tie to church on Sunday, taught his child to be polite to strangers and never say a word against a man or woman in the camp. Louisa heard the others whisper when her father passed. Now there's a man who knows his dynamite. There's r- luck runs in his crew. He never lost a single fellow worked for him. But luck ran out at home and took Conchata with it. Poor man saddled with that homely girl to care for. Now she cares for him. She works her fingers to the bone, that girl. And others talked without a single word. The married men or bachelors who watched behind her father's back, whose sooty faces said they saw her body growing underneath the man's jacket she wore against their stairs. She's not so skinny, their tough faces said. She's filling out. She has her mother's sway. All said in silence and behind John Mole. Louisa learned to walk, aiming her eyes just ahead on the hard ground of the path, holding two buckets so they wouldn't slosh, and she could always swing them if some fella jumped her in the scrub. She kept her eyes peeled as her father told her, adding this advice, Never trust a stranger, child. Some of these have come from lawless places of the world. He meant the Greeks. They spoke few English words and walked like men and looked askance at work, their olive fingers turning beads, dark eyes absorbing every gesture of the camp. Louisa heard their chatter, their Ella, Ella, Korizakimu, no safety in their tone, the plaintive tenor of their songs, their words a gravel to compound the tongue. And now the camp fell quiet, lamps were snuffed, the beaten man had sighed back into earth, and firing crews descended paths in moonlight, their gossip happy under summer stars, with all of heaven, blue, dark blue above, a perfect dome, from Reynold Prairies east to all the coal camps under the front range. And there atop that dome, the Greeks would say, the eyes of Christ, Pantocrator, world king, watched all, saw more than J.C. Osgood did from Redstone or the CF&I, saw more than John Mole tamping down his corncob pipe and cupping a lighted match against the breeze, saw more than young Louisa Mole, who waited, curled beneath a blanket in her bunk, hearing the voices of returning men. Saw more, I would imagine, if he lived as the believers say he did, than barons hours later in Manhattan, one especially thinking of Sunday school and frugal sleep and of investments in some mines out west, and that his father, John D. Sr., would approve the profit and apply the cost adroitly as before. The will of God. But the eyes of heaven are no living eyes as we might picture them, compassionate or fierce. They are the blankness overall, beautiful and empty as deep space, the diamond-hard reflections of the stars. I know that sky. I come to know it better year by year, the sky of passing time that pools and vanishes. I have come back. I saw this land first in a boyhood dream, made of my father's stories. Colorado, where the red of earth turned at night to the blue of moonlit heaven, where coyotes yapped up the arroyo and the deer came down to seek unsullied water in the streams. It was a fantasy. Cowboys and Indians, home on the range. 
And then I saw it from an uncle's car on the hot, endless drive from his Boulder home to Trinidad before the interstate and air conditioning in the late 50s. I, the spoiled middle son of a doctor, asking when we'd get there, wherever there was. And now there seemed so inhospitable, I no doubt longed for my rainy home up north. A solitary cone of rock rose up from lacerated land. The dry arroyos, scars that scuppered water in flood season down to a river. In dusty summertime, the cottonwoods eked out a living there in a ragged line below the high peaks. The ground was a plate of stony scoots that shone like diamonds at noon, an hour when diamondbacks coiled on sunbaked rocks, or so I pictured in color films imagination shot. The butte, they called El Huerfano, alone, east of the highway. We were driving south into the west. The heat-waved mountains rose, abrasive peaks without a trace of snow, bare rock above a belt of evergreens. This was my father's home. My father had a childhood here, so far away from mine, and knew of mines in the long-vanished towns, a butte the Mexicans had named the Orphan, and two peaks the Indians called the Huajatoyas, breasts of the earth, that made me and my brother giggle, pounding each other's arms. Ludlow, my uncle said, and pointed. Father told of militiamen posted in those hills, the miners camped below. Bastards fired machine guns on the miners' tents, he said. Yes, and set the tents on fire, our uncles told the rest. But I was much too young to think of soldiers doing any evil and yawned these complications out of mind. An open window of my uncle's car with dry wind whooshing through it framed my dreams. I dream Louisa, dreaming at midday, picking through heaps of bony by the mine for any bits of coal to burn in the stove. She has walked far to gather wood, the land picked clean for miles around, found water that runs clean upstream from the Berwyn mines, and it's far to carry such a heavy load. Louisa carries more than wood and water. Her dream is simple, a mother moment of brushing hair outdoors one summer day. Her mother told about New Mexico, of Hueso Guisandero, how the village shared the thigh bone of a buffalo, its marrow-flavored broth from every fire until the magic of the bone was gone and women cut it into squares for buttons. Louisa shakes it off. She holds her apron close to keep the company eyes from spying the eight small knobs of coal it holds. Her shoes worn thin as calluses. She sidesteps down the sliding slag then takes the path that cuts across the switchback wagon road to home. The men are at the mine. The firers check their wire and fuses. Timekeepers keep time as only timekeepers can. A train goes by for Trinidad, a town where agitators hawk their leftist papers and talk of strikes. At Walsenburg, the crooked sheriff, Jeff King Farr, receives an order of new rifles. While up in Denver, Damon Runyon writes of miners dying in more accidents, quote, with gunny sacking spread on the greasy floor. And with tubs and tables ready, the corner of Las Animas waits in a grimy machine shop for the pitiful procession that must soon come filing out of the dismal hole in the hillside, end quote. Rising from the Rocky Mountain news, the moment juts into the stream of time where Billy Reno, the company's chief thug, beats the tar out of nosy journalists. The agitators wait for union orders. 
The managers of Pluck Me stores await bankers who will change the miners' script for cash that would enable them to move, if they are lucky, down to Trinidad. The rocks outweigh the people, rise and fall so slowly human beings are unaware even as they dig for their lives within. All are waiting. One summer afternoon, kept by time like pinyon and prickly pear, like dry wash and cow pie, buffalo skull, like the man beaten in a world below the crust of earth where life is standing still. Louisa Mole arrives at her cabin door to spill the bits of coal and build the fire for supper. It will be her father's last. Now, that's how the book begins, and it moves further into that chapter and what happens to her father, how he dies in a in a mine accident. And um, what happens as the book progresses is that it becomes uh, a kind of polyphonic um, series of stories, all interlinked. And what I hope happens is that there's a strong linear narrative that binds it together and keeps you turning the pages, but you get multiple voices and multiple stories strung on this line. And uh, Luisa is one of the major characters. Uh, another major, Luisa is entirely made up, of course. Another major character is the historical figure, Louis Ticas, I told you about. I'm not going to read a Louis Ticas section because I feel like I would have to spend a great deal of time putting him into uh, context. But I do want to read you two stanzas that come out of a Louis Ticas section. Um, the story goes into this guy waking up in Denver, and it's the year 1912 at this point, two years before the massacre. And it's the year in which uh, Greece defeats the Ottoman Empire in the north of Greece and captures the city of Thessalonica. And so for the Greeks in Denver, this is a hugely important moment. They actually rent a train, and 400 Greeks in Denver board the train to go back and fight for the homeland in Greece. And Louis does not go back. Um, he stays in America and really makes what his friends think is a ca catastrophic mistake. He gets mixed up with these Union people who can't be trusted, right? And the Union was corrupt. The Union did betray many of its best people. So this is a very naughty, complicated, uh, tough uh, side of American story, of the American story. At the end of the first Louis chapter, I simply pull back and say this. This singular man, this footnote nearly lost from pages of the history books, Louis Elias, his name was Elias Spandidakis, he was from a little village in Crete. Louis Elias, named for the fiery prophet, but often so uncertain of his skin that only someone else's touch, some whore who thought he was Sicilian or a Serb and took the money first and said no kissing, made him believe that he was truly alive. What does it mean, nation of immigrants? What are the accents, fables, voices of roads, the tall tales told by the smallest desert plants? Even the wind in barbed wire goads me into making lines, fencing my vagrant thought. A story is the language of desire. A journey home is never what it ought to be. A land of broken glass, of gunfire. 
That's a sort of musical theme that works its way through the book. This is a land of broken glass. A land of gunfire. Um, next chapter I want to read, and, and I'll finish with this and see whether anybody wants to raise any questions, is another Louisa chapter. Um, there are chapters from the point of view of a Scottish immigrant who, whose life uh, owes a lot to my father-in-law who came over <clears throat> to America at the age of 42 and uh, lived 84 years. And whenever he used the word home, he meant Scotland. Um, and who had hundreds of lines of Scottish poetry by heart and little or no formal education uh, and could speak about poetry with more eloquence than most college professors. Um, so the too tall Macintosh, this Ayrshire man, who really uh, changes his life when he gets involved in this, in this struggle, uh, is somewhat modeled on, uh, on my wife's wonderful father. This is uh, really the next Louisa chapter, the next chapter about that little girl. And I wanted to read it because it, it again, shows you how the voice moves in and out of intimacy. It moves into intimacy and then moves away from intimacy at will. Um, this is a chapter when the girl is newly orf orphaned and the, the miners are trying to figure out what they're going to do with her. The chapter is called The Pluck Me Store, which is what the miners called the company store. The miners were paid in script. They were not, it was illegal, by the way, but the companies could do anything they wanted. They were not policed. Um, and uh, so miners could only spend the money they were paid, the script they were paid, in company stores, which charged exorbitant prices. And so they were cheated left and right. It's one of the reasons they went on strike. The Pluck Me Store. Five nights after the firing crew brought word of his death, John Mole stooped in at the door. Louisa heard his boots scrape on the boards and tried to lift her head, but she was held by fear she couldn't name. Lay in her bunk, feeling his presence. She saw him strike a match and touch it to the oily wick and lean in lamplight over his sleeping daughter's form. Her form? Her eyes were open, and his face with black streaks underneath his bushy brows hovered there. She knew he looked like that. Not burned as you might expect, but suffocated, crushed, and thrown through a wall. A good death, Putal said, but too young. No death is good, said Lefty. Death's an insult to a man. And there he was, alive above her bunk, until she bolted, shouting, Papa! loud enough to wake the dead, only to find she was awake and he was dead again, again, as if each dying made it harder. Senora Robles moved the cardboard wall beside her bed to keep the sobbing girl from waking others and now shared the house. She held her shoulders, rocking her back to sleep. Dreams of her mother were so different, both day and night, her quiet suffering, fever and rash. Luisa couldn't believe, despite the nightdress soaked with sweat, the moans in Mexican, the panic in her eyes, when Conchata saw her only living child, what stillness she became one autumn morning, washed by women while her daughter sobbed. Gone now, as the earth itself was gone, it seemed, days at a time. The pinion jays that fed amid the scrub, they were not real. Jackrabbits pausing on a knoll were ghosts as big as dogs come from memory scraps, 
the leavings of a life no longer lived. She heard the neighbors talk. What can we do? Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing. One day a woman walked up from the train who said she had Luisa's name in a book and would explain the orphanage in Pueblo for minor children who had lost all kin. They sat on chairs outside in the dirt yard. The woman talked, that too, no longer real. Nothing was real except the kindling splinter Luisa used to scrape a toenail, peeling oily grit from underneath, wanting to be clean. She couldn't raise her eyes to look because to look at the round-faced woman sweating in her shirtwaist meant she was real and they were truly dead. She knew only not to betray them out of their shared life, the kind man tamping down his corncob pipe, the wife he cried for till his eyes were red. The other women gathered to defend her with Mrs. McIntosh, Senora Robles. She can't stay here, the stranger was explaining. I see she isn't eating well. How thin she is. I have instructions. Others need a corner of the house. There are others. Workers, families, children. They have jobs. I have a job. Responsibilities. Those wiry women swept the stranger off as swiftly as they could. We've heard about that home. It's far away from everything she knows. She won't go there if we can help it. Lady, write this on your paper. and We keep the girl with us. She ours like family, like child our own. Their voices rose, a flock of pinyon jays, and gone was the stranger down the stony path, gone back to the train, gone back to Pueblo with her book. Luisa felt familiar hands, unreal, familiar skirts surrounding her. She watched the sunlight in the risen dust, a dream of dust choking the dream of summer. She felt a neighborly caress. Sweetie, you sit tight for now, you hear? Sit tight. Aranquera. The senora said, hard times. Out of the rock folds, the scrub, the deep sky, out of the junipers that loosed the dark when the sun crept over the mountaintops, out of the mouths and tipples of the mines where men still worked, inquest or no inquest, where coke ovens glowed a stone inferno, out of the train that wailed to Trinidad and back to Denver with its load of news, came the sound that was not a sound, a muted scratching for life. All day she watched the hens of mining families cluck about the houses, named them by the way they worried or bossed. One was Mrs. for her Scottish talent, catching bugs on the ground. One, Senora, for the way she pushed the other hens about despite a tattered wing coyote plucked. And the old cock who croaked his song at sunrise was a Welshman for the way he tried to sing her playthings, better for not being people and being so much smaller when they died. Girls came by, showed her their stitched dolls. Boys looked over their shoulders, whispered among themselves. She heard them talking, breezes, hens, women. Whenever she passed the yards, their wash tubs, their bodies at work. She knows, said Mrs., she knows the rag, the blood. She's not too young for it. We've managed to stoop to the wrong thing here. She isn't safe. And more she wouldn't hear, though it came at her in whispers from all sides in the feeding and breeding and dying life of the camp. She watched as a woman scooped up a hen by the legs, stepped on its squawking head, and jerked. 
Casamiento de pobres, fábrica de limosneros. A marriage of the poor is a factory of beggars. Senora Robles said it like the scripture, watching her own young ruffians at play. She turned back to the stoop where Luisa sat beside two apple crates of her possessions, la pobrecita, always waiting for men. Luisa watched the others watching her as she had done at her father's funeral, the short march of neighbors to the dry hill of wooden markers, words of kindness spoken for the girl a good man left behind. He's gone. He's gone. Don't look. Don't ever look. Senora Robles cooked food like her mother's with jalapenos and black beans, while Tutal, on occasion, brought a rabbit home for stew. She hated evenings when he went to work, as her father had, taking the path up while Robles and his diggers limped back down. She noticed Mrs. McIntosh could keep her thin hands busy as she could to calm her mind. Even that sinewy Glaswegian who had borne two living children was afraid. Her boys were Tom and Nicky, eight and six, and neither of them much help to their mother. They wore the holes she spent her spare time darning. Louisa watched them, kept them from snakes and blasting caps. She carried water, wood, and hunks of scavenged coal. She tried to help the neighbors who helped her as best she could, read from her father's Bible, scrub their pots. Tutal had said her future was arranged and everyone was safe. What did he mean? Why did the older women watch her so and chase the boys away with angry words in Mexican or Scots, brandishing sticks to wave them off? She waited on the stoop, her skirted knees held close as if to guard her body from the eyes. What wasn't said? Word reached the Pluck Me store in Cedar Hill where Mrs. Reed, who had four daughters, lay pregnant, confined to bed by a company doctor. She'd lost a son last year and couldn't bear, they said, to lose another. She had a four-room clabbered house, a well for water, space beside the kitchen stove where a thing as slight as young Louisa Mole could throw a pillow and her blankets down to sleep. In time, perhaps, they'd build a bunk. The girl could cook, clean house, and mind the children in exchange for shelter in a Christian home. It was arranged. While others crammed her house, Louisa waited with her boxed-up goods beside her as the buckboard wagon drew nearer on the road. She saw the man who drove, his straw hat shading half his face. She saw two tall Macintosh on foot beside the wagon, talking to the man, the straw hat nodding, coat and tie, though it was hot. Her future, coming close. The enemy, or so she used to think, a man of scrip and heavy prices, cursed by mining folk, a stranger, Mr. Reed. Luisa, too tall, stooped to touch her hair. Lass, this man's your new employer. Chin up, let's look at you. She saw the man's good shoes when he stepped down, the trousers, buttoned vest. George Reed, said Mr. Reed. Don't be afraid. He swung his hat off. A man of thirty years with blue eyes and a blonde mustache, his hair parted almost down the middle. That's it. Good girl. His mustache bristled when he smiled. She's not much older than mine. You say she can read? She's had it hard, said Too Tall. There's plenty around here who's had it hard, said Mr. Reed. We could use the help if she can work. You can work, can't you, young lady? Louisa, right? You can work, can't you? 
Lisa nodded. Atta girl. Good girl. They loaded up her apple crates of clothing, Bible, the wooden santo her mother brought from a village far away, the carver's name made shiny by the rub of hands. Abuelo. No tiene una ni madre, said the voice behind her. Good lass, good lassie. Work hard and don't forget us, said Mrs. Goodbye, said the house, the hens, the risen dust. Well, I'm going to pause there. This is um, a point at which Luisa's life uh, changes. She joins a middle-class family and sees, as it were, the other side of the tracks. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not doing this uh, out of a kind of virtuous sense of creating justice. Um, I'm doing it partly because this is my family she's joining. Um, and so I have a personal um, narrative underneath uh, the larger narrative of this novel. And it's a narrative about uh, upward mobility in America and um, uh, and it's woven into uh, the story of the miners down there in the camps and it's woven into the landscape that you and I are living in right now, um, which bears the names of all of these things. I'm going to give you one other little detail that's worked into the book toward the end and then I'll just pause and see whether anyone wants to ask anything or say anything about what's going on here. Um, if you go to Trinidad, Colorado, um, which is a far more interesting town than you realize if you just pass through on the interstate, um, the river that flows through that town was called the Rio de las Animas Perdidas in Purgatorio. Okay? The storied river. Um, and on the east side of the river is the Catholic Cemetery. On the west side of the river is the Protestant cemetery. You drive up into the Protestant cemetery through the brick gates, and it's not hard to find the grave of Louis Ticas, which is about 100 yards away from where my grandparents are buried. Louis Ticas's grave would not be known if not for the writer I was telling you about at the beginning of this evening, Zis Papanicolas, who's a man I want to bring to this campus to talk sometime. He's a man who writes a lot about American history and culture, Greek-American, fascinating character. Zeese did all the hard research. Zeese went to Louis' village in Crete, found out where the man lived, where he came from, found out that he was really 28 when he died, and he was shot in the back, not 30, as the monument says at Ludlow. Uh, and Zeese got the UMWA to put the monument on Louis' grave. Um, and the last word on his inscription is patriot. Welcome to America. Okay. Well, does anybody want to ask anything? This is a risky moment. Yeah, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting thing. Um, uh, Lots of novels make use of this uh, um, business of, of letting characters say something in a, in a foreign language and then translating it for readers, etc. I don't do that with every phrase I use. I do it with a few phrases that seem to me to be um, rhythmically uh, appropriate in, in this sense. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a problem. I mean, there's actually no... Um, 
good reason why a novelist has to do these things. Um, but I have this instinctive feeling that it provides a texture I want. Um, and I'm using Spanish um, in some cases that I got from a, a folklorist who researched the Spanish of this region. When I showed it to some folks in Mexico City about a month ago, they were saying, oh, that's not the Americana. That's, that's, that's not our Spanish. Um, yeah. yeah, it's dialect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually in the hallway in Armstrong Hall the other day, and Father Dave, who's teaching a class for the religion department, you guys know, uh, I don't know what the class is, but he was bringing a man in to talk about the penitentes in this region. And I said, oh, and they said, well, this guy's just written a book about Ludlow and introduced me to this guy. And I said, uh, yeah, whenever I drive to Ludlow, I cut off the highway at Aguilar and drive up the back canyons into the hills, and then I come out the dirt road to Ludlow. So you're coming out through some of the mining canyons. And this guy said, oh, yes, lots of penitentes back there, lots of the spirit back there. What's the word, is it? Dorada? Is that the word they use uh, for that sort of dark spirit? Um, and uh, yeah, we are not very far away from this incredible cultural heritage. And you can live in the city and not realize it. Thank you for asking. Anybody want to ask anything else? Yeah, got it. This is, uh, for the most part, pentameter blank verse. Um, and you'll notice that I don't read it as if I'm reading regular um, verse. And it's because I'm experimenting with finding a, a performative voice for the book, trying to figure out how to read the book. And um, so most lines are 10 syllables or in the neighborhood of 10 syllables. Most lines have five beats, but I use a lot of variation when I write. And so there are relative, there's a, compared to early Shakespeare or Christopher Marlowe, there are relatively few regular iambic lines. But compared to late Shakespeare, um, uh, the, the variation in rhythm is not uncommon. Late Shakespeare is all over the map. Um, and what, what he's doing is using the psychology of the speaking voice to charge the meter and create an intense variety. He's using stops and starts in the sentences. So the sentences break up the lines, the movement down the line and down the stanza is broken up. And, and every now and then I'll move into a, a rhetoric that feels a little more regular. Out of the rock folds, the scrub, the deep sky. Out of the junipers that loose the dark when the sun crept over the mountaintops. Out of the mouths and tipples of the mines where men still worked in quest or no in quest, where coke ovens glow to stone inferno. You can hear each of those different lines. But I'm allowing sentence rhetoric to work against the motion of the line, hopefully creating a kind of dramatic voice. I don't hear that. Spoken like an opera singer. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the truth is, ordinary prose does the same thing, except that they type it differently. Um, there's a lot of this kind of there's a lot of this kind of verse in Zora Neale Hurston. The opening paragraph of "Their Eyes Were Watching God" is pretty good blank verse, uh, beautiful language. There's a hell of a lot of blank verse in Melville, probably a lot in Faulkner, who took Shakespeare in with his mother's milk. Um, and um, so, th so the only difference is that I'm typing it differently. You know, a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, is typed as prose that may or may not have been intended as verse, and vice versa. 
vice versa. Um, and um, because we, we have textual problems there. So for me, the issue really is that this is an organized rhythm in the English language, and it can be used, hopefully, with some command to create a convincing sense, convincing sense of intensity uh, that abets the story. I also believe that stories are lyrical in themselves. That a good story has a shape every bit as much as a sonnet has a shape, every bit as much as a villanelle has a shape. So there's a lyricality of story and there's a lyricality of line. I don't know why people aren't doing this all the time. Um, yeah. The weakness is that um, we live in a culture that thinks you can't do this. It's, it's pure marketing BS. Um, and we live in a culture that uh, has accepted the propaganda that prose is the medium for storytelling. And, uh, and that's the way you do it. And the marketing works that way. And it's, it's more complicated than that. I actually would argue that in the 20th century, we created a... The poets are culpable in this. We created a scene in which poetry is perceived to be difficult, arcane, the realm of academics, and not something that readers who would read novels can enjoy. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think it impoverishes the art of poetry. It misunderstands the nature of the art of poetry. And, um, and it creates a class of priestly professors who um, might... Uh, in some ways, be um, um, ghettoizing the art of poetry. And I think we're coming out of that now. I think something's happening with various populist trends in the culture that are breaking down doors. And the truth is, the culture of reading and the culture of literature are losing the battle everywhere. So why not write a novel in verse? <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody reads novels, for God's sake. You know, Nobody reads novels in prose. You know, the percentage of people who read the Gazette is just minuscule. Um, so you see, you know, see what I'm saying? Um, I don't know. You've got to do what you love. I did this out of love. I'm deeply proud of this book. Um, and, and it feels to me like I was in training for this book a lot of my life uh, in terms of what I've lived and in terms of what I've written. Boy, it's a, that's a great question. That's a fantastic question. And I don't think anybody can answer it. I think a, a reader might very well respond to this and say, I would have liked it better if he'd typed it differently. Um, and I, I got an email from a, a Hungarian English poet in England who read the book and loved it. But he's Hungarian English. He understands this stuff. Um, and now he said... You know what? It feels appropriate to poetry to me. So I think what he's getting at is that there's an overlay of something mythologizing, mythic, verging on the epic, which resonates with all these ideas of, of, of the narrative poem that come down to us culturally. But you don't have to buy that. You know, some people are going to respond that way, maybe because that's their experience of literature. But your question is fantastic. And, it, you know, it, it, um, uh, I've been making an argument for narrative verse for 20 years. Uh, and I've been losing the battle. 
Um, and I don't care. Um, I've got tenure. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, I like this stuff. I like reading Homer. I like reading Virgil, you know. I like reading Dante. And I'm not saying this is as good as Homer, Virgil, Dante, right? I am saying, though, that it partakes of that realm. It attempts to. Yeah, Owen. Oh, shit! <laughs> yeah. 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 I know. Well, what I'm doing there is winking at you, Owen. Um, what I did when I wrote the climactic chapter of the book, uh, The Battle, um, is I switched to a hexameter line um, as my little nod and a wink to Homer. And, um, and I, I vary it with a lot of four-beat lines. And so I'm, I'm a little bit like Fagel's translations, where Fagel's is uh, quite loose in his version of the line. But... Um, yeah, I, I actually had a, a, a very well-trained poem poet and a, and a good narrative poet wrote me a letter about a draft of this, and he says, I think your meter goes a little bit wrong in that chapter. And I said, you know, it's hexameter, man. Uh, <laughs> well, the thing is, nobody writes in hexameter anymore. I mean, nobody writes in hexameter. The, the uh, communist poet Thomas McGrath wrote a great long poem called Letter to an Imaginary Friend in a kind of loose hexameter that would have made a brilliant translation of Homer, uh, but he never did Homer. He did the Hopi Indians instead. And uh, anyway, um, yeah, what, do you, what, what the hell's going what, so I guess writers can make little private jokes sometimes, right? And that's my, that's my little, that's, that's for you and Lisa, and, uh, and maybe three, three other people. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, um, it started with it started with self consciousness about the insanity of the whole project and fear about. How, who would read this and what they would think of it? And um, the great narrative poet B.H. Fairchild, who has written not really about what we would call blue-collar workers, but really about highly skilled laborers in a machine shop, has sometimes been denigrated incorrectly, I think, by critics as the middle-class professor writing about manual labor and romanticizing it. Well, I've worked more manual laborer than the poet Philip Levine ever did, and he spent his whole career writing about manual laborers. So there's Seamus Heaney's a farmer's son and has written so much about tools and work and the life of the land. And I just don't believe that a poet should have any limits put on him or her in terms of subject matter. But I was scared about this subject matter. I was scared that I would be perceived as somebody sentimentalizing um, the immigrants uh, in a in a highly politicized way, uh, and 
because we still are having these wars in America, because these are still part of the fabric of our lives. And so, first of all, I started doing it as strategy. The strategy was, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what Milan Kundera does in some of his novels, walks into the novel and lets you know that he's writing the novel. Now, I had mixed feelings about that. Some people read the draft of the book said, I think you should cut all that stuff and just let the story speak for itself. Very valid point, a valid aspect of storytelling. Other people said, no, they were really interested in what I was doing and they wanted to see more of it. Nobody has yet said that they thought I got it right. The, the balance back and forth. But it felt right to me. And it felt right to me because I, want, I have done narratives where I've been in the voices of bizarre characters unlike myself. I've been in the voices of murderers. I've been in the voices of people of different gender, different sexuality, all this stuff and things I've written. I wanted not to be hemmed in by the parameters of first-person limited or third-person limited narration. I wanted the absolute freedom to go anywhere I wanted in this story. I wanted to use any vocabulary I wanted in this story. I wanted to use Greek when I wanted, Spanish when I wanted, Scots when I wanted, all the English dialect I want. I want to use the mining dialect and not footnote it, not explain any of it, let it be there as texture, as part of uh, the fabric of the, uh, the language of the book. Um, and I loved it. It was intoxicating to me to create a new narrative, a new, for me, narrative voice and allow myself to change point of view and move about in time. The, one of the chapters of The Scots Immigrant, Tutal Macintosh, starts in the fall of 1913 when he gets drunk and joins the strike and his wife is really pissed at him. Um, and the chapter moves into a disaster where the union is trying to get legitimacy by getting strikers to go down to New Mexico and try to rescue miners who were killed in a, a mine explosion at Dawson where 263 Italian and Greek immigrants were killed in one explosion. And, um, and the chapter moves into that and uses the Scots dialect and then it remembers that same moment from 30 years later when Tutal's an old man who never did get back to Scotland who ended up in Pueblo. Um, and, and he can tell us that all of this ended in disaster. Nobody won. The union lost. The struggle came to naught. Labor relations were not improved until the 1920s when there was a whole new political impetus at work in the country. Um, and the union even betrayed its own people. And he was part of that. Um, so, to me, it was the freedom of it that I wanted. And so I said, what the hell? I'm just going to walk into this story and move it where I want to. But I, I hope I don't do it too much. That's my hope. Yeah. Yeah, minimally. Um, I, I'm a, a big believer in not doing much research. Um, no, that, that I read... I read... Two, group, two very good books about Ludlow. The best is Zeus Papa Nicholas, which is in our library. Great book. Buried, unsung, Louis Picus and the Ludlow Massacre. Forward by Wallace Stegner. Kept in print 
by one of the heroic presses of America, the University of Nebraska Press. Um, I read George McGovern's book about it. I read um, some folklore stuff um, uh, about this region, some historical chapters of a book uh, edited by a guy named Baca, um, uh, and one of which was a chapter written by one of these old ranchers who's a friend of our family, Rich Loudon, wonderful old rancher, still alive, one-armed man, um, whose land may be grabbed by the army very soon. Um, and, uh, and I read a little bit of uh, Ruben uh, uh, Cobos, a professor's folklore researches on Hispano identity in, in uh, southern Colorado. And nothing else. The rest is made up or lived. And by lived, I mean um, my family were talkers. And they told stories about, I have so many stories from one of my uncles that I had to leave out uh, for the sake of economy. Uh, for example, when Louis Ticas had a love affair with a nurse in the camps and, and went into Trinidad to dance in the old dance floor, uh, my uncle knew that dance floor. It was across from where he went to high school. And the dance floor was on springs so that all these people dancing on the dance floor wouldn't you know, bounce the building uh, off its off its foundations, as it were. Well, I left that out. Great detail, right? Um, but that stuff is just in my blood. It's been in my blood ever since I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. completely agree. There are whole stanzas in this book about the purgatory watershed because it flows to the Arkansas, which flows to the Mississippi, which flows to the Gulf of Mexico, which flows to Greece. I'm living on the shores of a Greek island. Well, I, I can't tell you how uh, appreciative I am that you guys came and that you asked questions. I didn't know what was going to happen. So thank you very, very much. And I hope you take a look at the book. Okay? Thanks for coming. <laughs>